Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. Scott Campbell, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, really, would you like, really yeah, would you like to sort of yeah. introduce yourself to our listeners, um, a, a Precy CV or something like that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so my name's uh, Scott Campbell. Um, I am the author of uh, a Substack blog called Captain Yankee Jock. Um, captain refers to my title. I'm a Merchant Navy uh, captain um, in the UK. Uh, I work as a freelance master mariner and a basically a maritime uh, business consultant um, uh, running my company, Independent Marine Limited. Um, basically, uh, been going to sea on and off for about 20 years. Um, unlike most people who work at sea, they, they tend to specialise. Uh, so tanker men will do tankers for 20 years, uh, ferry guys will do ferries for 20 years, but uh, I've been very fortunate to have a very wide, wide-ranging career um, spanning small ships, big ships, uh, everything in between, um, and yeah, so I think I think that sort of covers my my background. Uh, I spent five or six years in publishing as well, doing uh, technical editing. So I've, I've worked on dozens and dozens of books. Um, that's where I sort of learned how to how to write properly. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm quite a, a sort of free market guy. Um, spent a lot of time at sea with people from former Soviet countries. Um, but I was reading a lot of free market sort of books uh, in my own time. Um, so that sort of threw up a lot of good sort of philosophical and intellectual questions uh, through my career. And yeah, that's all sort of informed my philosophy on management and everything. Um, and yeah, and you guys seem to like my blog so um so you know how did the how did the free market stuff come about i mean from my perspective i was introduced to the the so-called austrian or classical school through um people i was i was chatting to around basically around the turn of the millennium um so people like mises popped up and hayek how, how did you come across these guys yeah i mean essentially i really should never have come across them because, you know, I, I went to university and I, I did a sort of uh, marine science degree, um, which uh, the University of Aberdeen was a very good uh, university. Um, but the first couple of years, we were in the land economy department. So we were given that sort of good basic grounding in, in economics um, in the first year or two. Uh, but by the time I got to fourth year, the land economy department had been, you know, it was a very sort of... Um, been there for 500 years and it was the children of farmers in the northeast of scotland who sort of founded the school um it was absorbed by geography and it went into this uh sort of time of upheaval when i when i was in third fourth year university um and the upshot of that was i started getting into a lot of trouble with my lecturers you know i had we had one professor teaching ecofeminism and uh, i came came up against that yeah so um, you can imagine the arguments, um, uh, and then I left, and I had a you know I had one very good tutor who basically said, "Well, academia is not not going to be for you. Why don't you go and, and do the sea?" And I, and I had already done four years in the Navy Reserve while I was at university, so I just just went to sea, and I ended up in the oil industry. And when you work in the oil industry, you know I had to really square my conscience with. Um, the environmental stuff that I had been taught and 
then you start tugging that thread and you realize actually this is a lot of nonsense ethically, scientifically. And basically once you get into the ethics of politics, you can't escape Austrian economics. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I know he's, he's, he's sort of uh, cancelled at the moment, but I, I liked a uh, podcast with Stephen Molyneux and he had some great books on ethics. Um, and from there I went into Hayek and um, Henry Hazlitt. Do you know Henry Hazlitt? Henry Hazlitt is very that's... approachable, very, very user-friendly introduction to um, classical economics. Yeah, fantastic. And, and obviously being Scottish, I'd read Adam Smith or, you know, um, translations of wealth of nations uh, mm. previously but um but yeah it's just when you when you realize things like well gdp uh, people speak in the news about gdp and you're like oh, it's kind of made up but it, you know it includes government spending and you start to realize then that you're just being lied to all the time um but you can understand that you know it's it's within a par- paradigm that these people think and then you realize that well there are four schools of economics and they all broadly agree on things that are completely ignored by politicians. Um, so that this idea that we live in a Keynesian economy, it's just nonsense when you actually look at the business cycle and it's, you know, they're actually supposed to reduce spending sometimes. Well, we're not Keynesian in our way. We're just doing whatever. <laughs> so, uh, um, how much are you enjoying the, the in, a, in a black comic way, the complete implosion of the uh, Conservative Party and all it stands for and all it ever allegedly stood for? I mean... Yeah, I, I was never completely sold. I, you know, I've always been much more of a, an ANCAP in, in my leanings. I, I think the government should really concern itself with the military and not much else. But it, recently, I don't know, it's just kind of sad. It's the same with the COVID stuff. Uh, I, I feel like I, maybe I should be more smug and, you know, I, it, it's just sad. It's really sad. I, I don't think people really grasp how, how bad things are, you know? Um, and we're looking at the prospects of a Labour government. You know, I, I remember when Tony Blair got in, um, it was when I first sort of became aware of politics when I was a young kid. And, I, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't even working then, but it, there was this a completely different political mood at the time. And I, I don't really think politicians are anywhere connected to society anymore you know do you think there's any functional distinction between the conservative and labor party now um so i call it i call it one louder politics uh so the what one louder same, one louder yeah do you yeah. remember there, there was that movie spinal tap yeah um, yeah, yeah. Oh, do we remember spinal <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, we've yeah, so opined on that a few times on the pod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want big-bottomed girls? But it's classic. Talk about they, bump cheeks. My girl's got them. Big bottom, drive me out of my mind. Best lyric in the world. How can I leave this behind? behind yes. Yeah, so we both saw them live, didn't we, Tim? <clears throat> I, yeah, I've oh, seen I've seen Spinal Tap oh, live at the uh, Royal Albert Hall. We may have been at the oh. same gig, funnily enough. Without, without before we met, it was before where we met. Synchronicity. Well, I, I've got uh, I've got a Derek Smalls. Uh, guitar pick somewhere that I better find because he chucked it into the crowd and I managed to get it. So, oh, that's amazing! <laughs> yeah, I've got a Derek yeah. Small's um, stain, uh, tinfoil banana. <laughs> <laughs> well, frankly, we've got armadillos down our pants. It's a bit frightening. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, you'd, you'd fit right in on a cargo ship, mate. That's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll let our audience well, decide. Well, <laughs> yeah, no comment. But yeah, it's, it, you, we saw the same with uh, Nicola Sturgeon up here, and, and Keir Starmer's the same. It's whatever the government did through COVID, they would they would lock down one week earlier, do one thing worse, you know, one more restriction than them just to see or who's going to outdo the other one. But they're, they're all in the same paradigm. There's no there's no original thinking at all, and and I think almost they put less trust in this position because they knew it was about to collapse. You know, it, it it's just but she's the appointed hard. full full girl then. Yeah, I mean it's it's I mean doesn't it feel that way to you? It, it, it's hard to believe someone can be so free of charisma. Charisma, and that, charisma, but, you know, It's it's almost like not a real person. You know, um, so yeah, I, I really, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think Labour is any different. I think it is the Uniparty. Um, if, if I were to suggest that, I mean, my, my own opinion on which I'm not shy to express that both the Conservative and Labour parties should have no electoral future, having both uh, advocated for lockdown, the most single damaging policy in our country's history. Would you, would you have any sympathy to, for that view? Unrealistic as it may be. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, there's a lot of people in Scotland who think Tony Blair should be in prison for um, war crimes and he seems to be doing better than ever. So I don't think anything's going to happen to these people, even though by rights, they've committed fraud, um, possibly manslaughter, criminal neglect at the very least. Um, so, I, but, you know, I wrote this morning in my, my blog, what are our police busy doing? Uh, I mean, you had you had a great police officer on uh, a few podcasts ago from the yes. was it the Bad Law Project. Or, bad Law, yeah. What was his name again? He, he was fantastic. Um, Miller was his surname. I've forgotten his first name. Um, yeah, he'll come to me. Yeah, but we seem we seem to have stumbled into this um, this world where the the law doesn't apply to the leaders anymore, and that essentially was what made. Britain a, a unique country was we had this constitutional tension where the rulers had to obey the rules more or less and it just seems to have gone out the window um, the last few years and clearly that's what they were aiming for. I mean, the, the point of having power is to be exempt from the rules. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know where we go from here, but it, it is a worry. So it was uh, Harry Miller. Harry Miller, guy we yeah. had on from Bad Law. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I know policemen um, who are sensible. And the the thing that I'll say is that, in, you know, in Scotland, um, the police are in a, a much worse situation because, um, you know, since uh, we we used to have regional police forces before SNP uh, amalgamated them all into Police Scotland and made the head of the police politically controlled. So, at least in the old days, they would send officers from Aberdeen to the Western Isles, or, or they could police each other. Uh, but now there is no one to police the police in Scotland. Um, and they go through heads of the police almost every year. Uh, as soon as they say something that displeases the SNP, uh, they're out. So I, I think it's a really worrying time. But the only good thing is that the guys on the ground, they do seem to be seeing through it more. And especially the older police, speaking to the young ones, they, they do seem to have an attitude of, we're not going to enforce this and that. And, you know, she's passing all these laws about the 
your toddler can be transgender and all this sort of carry on. But <laughs> when I yeah. when I take my kids to the to the nursery, you know these old wifeys and who run the nursery they don't pay any attention to these things. So that that's the only thing that reassures me is that there's a limit to how much lies people can believe. You know, I mean, I was just going to ask on 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 this topic. What do you think it it needs to take? I don't know how many people would would claim to be quote awake unquote in relation to what's going on in the world at the moment maybe it's five percent maybe it's ten percent maybe it's it's lower maybe it's higher but to, to distinguish between effectively the woke and the awake what do you think it takes is this a process that can be um asserted or do you just have to wait for people to, to get it on, on under their own steam because it doesn't seem to be easy to persuade people um I'm not sure what awake means, but I'm, I'm, you know, that's why I'm writing now. Is is I just have to speak, and and I think people are awake on one issue or another that they know about. Um, so there's this phenomena of of the news where you watch the news and they talk about your industry, and it doesn't matter what industry it is, if it's if it's something you know about, you just you know that you know you know that the news coverage is nonsense. Yeah, complete nonsense. But then you believe what they say about every other industry. And and it's a bit like that. I, f- I feel like you have to, that's why I, I focus on sort of mundane day-to-day things in my in my blog, because that those are the sort of parables that people can relate to. And they go, oh yeah, no, my three-year-old is a boy. <laughs> Self-evidently, you know, so this, this is the level that I, I sort of feel that it, it's very easy to, to point to Klaus Schwab is the bad guy. He's published a book. You know, it's it's really transparent. All the rest of it, but it just sounds too abstract. And you start speaking about Austrian economics to people, it just goes over their head. They don't care. Um, but the the DNA of the issue is is people's day to day life, and you just have to point out, you know, things that people get really upset about recycling. You know, is it really good for the environment that you have a pile of garbage on your kitchen counter every week? Is the government really helping, you know, potholes in the road, things like that? That's what people get really upset about. And that's that's the sort of angle of attack that I try to take is, is go for the the day-to-day details, you know. Um, and comedy as well, you know, it's easy to laugh at these people. They're all idiots. And I think the trap, on the one hand, I, I'm always in two minds about this because I, I'm, you know, I'm more or less ideologically an, an anarchist. Um, or minarchist, but to to convince people to that position is nearly nearly impossible. Um, they have to find it by themselves, and I think you, like they always say, you know, you, you don't become a libertarian. You discover that you always wear one. That that's the sort of um, that's the sort of mission is to help people realise that you know you actually have free speech. What's happening now is not a hate speech law to protect free speech. They, they are removing your ability to speak and think. Why would they do it? You know, things like that. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know if that, if that answers the question, but um, D, DNA is, is the sort of level that you need to attack these ideas at, you know? It, it was interesting, actually, that on the Joe Rogan podcast, there was Constantine Kristen talking about how in the very early stages of when they sent, set up their trigonometry podcast, they mm. they were they discovered that, um, that there was a, a, a comedian who was 
who was uh, banned, I can't remember the name of, uh, I think it was a she, who was banned um, for, for saying something that somebody took offence to. And it, it was possibly relatively minor, but one of those things where many people just went, well, you know, that was, that was just sort of one of those things. But for them, it, it, it was, it was, it was the beginning of something and they recognized it. Mm. And then mm -hmm. later on, it was, then it started to wash in across to everybody else. And, and it was like people were getting canceled left, right and center. And then all of a sudden people took notice and started to say, you know, there, there's obviously something going on here now. And the whole problem with this is, is it's actually exactly what you're saying here in terms of discovering that you're a libertarian. It's all well and good when it's not you that's being affected but when mm. it starts to affect you as an individual, then then people's opinions change on all of this. It's you know if the, if if you're saying something that you think is is completely fair on Twitter, and then suddenly receive a knock at the door and it's the police, and they're saying we're checking yeah. your thinking, you might actually then start to <laughs> to to worry a little bit more about what on earth is going on in the world, and. But whilst that's not happening to you, you, you can you can say, oh, well, you know, everything's all right and try and ignore it. It's, it's worse than that, though, because there, there's the there's the people who think they're on the right side of it. So, you, you know, there's the people who imagine when the communist revolution happens, uh, it'll be OK because I'll be in the officer class. You know, the, mm. the, the, Karen, the Karens and the, the enforcers, and those are the people that really should scare you. So the, the nature of revolutions is they tend to eat everybody, including their own children. So no one, well, no that, one's free. No one's safe. That's right. And you know, I I realised that even before a cancel culture, you know, just the idea of political correctness. I, my whole life, I've had this because I think when I was ten years old, if someone threatened me with uh, going to the police when I was in primary school because I was making fun of my my friend who was Indian and making a joke. Uh, to them and even back then it was absolutely perplexing to me because my, my dad, uh, my parents divorced and my dad had remarried uh, a Pakistani woman and so like to me and, and my kids now, they, race is like just a non-issue but when it's politi politicised in institutions mm. it, this political correctness and so you, once you discover that political correctness the actual phrase was invented by Vladimir Lenin. Yes. Astonishing, isn't it? Yes, yes. I was going to say it before you said it. So, yeah, I'm really pleased you know. Yeah, <laughs> it uh, came from Russia, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's designed, you know, all these things are completely designed um, to cause cognitive dissonance and, and to, to divide your thinking and... and, and prevent you from just pointing out actually come on there's nothing in this for me you know and that's how they get away with it yeah they get you out outraged about one thing or the other get you scared and and it's just a conveyor about whatever the issue of the day is it's just a distraction from the creeping socialism that's all around you so so politi you know, politically being politically correct so the actual term is actually acknowledging that it's not factually correct. So, so that was the whole point right. of it. It's like this is this might not be factually correct, but we're going to say it's politically correct. So therefore, therefore we can say that you're wrong because it's not politically. But it's it's designed to paralyze you. The, the cognitive dissonance is designed to paralyze you, and, and so you just it's, you it's just think, well, 
it's too stressful. I'm not dealing with this. It's you know? a bit like the, the phrase um, conspiracy theory, which apparently was created yeah. by the CIA to discredit anybody that might consider something a little bit awry. So the very term itself basically destroys all further communication on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, the meaning still exists. So, you know, um, I think it was uh, George Orwell did a fantastic uh, essay um, on the sort of conveyor belt of meaning. And it, and it comes, you know, the, the, um, the terminology for IQ uh, went through this where, you know, uh, terms like moron, um, refer to a specific IQ band of 60 to 85, for example, and terms like idiot, moron, uh, these were medical terms. And they became stigmatized. Credit would presumably be one as well then. I, I think so, yeah. And and they, they and then they became stigmatized because obviously it's a negative thing to be, you know, impaired, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so they say, well, if we just change the word, but then okay, then then they came out with the word uh, retarded, because um, then you could you couldn't tell what IQ band the person was. And now um, that's and now that's now that's stigmatized. No longer, so it's just no longer available. So reality still exists, and these euphemisms just go on a conveyor belt one after the other. Um, so so it's something that people do, but it's been captured. The process has been captured um, for nefarious means uh, politically. Um, but that's why I, my dictionary that I keep on my shelf is from 1952, and that, that's the one I'm sticking to. I'm not using any of <laughs> The IQ test was the same. It wasn't actually designed to look for intelligence or to grade intelligence. It was designed to find... Um, Winkle out the cretins. Well, it was, it was <laughs> defined to, to, to try and find, find areas of where people needed help um, in special education. So it was, it was actually for the almost for the inverse purpose with which, which it's used now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the, we could spend a whole pod just on the topic of education. Um, how how old are your kids, um, Scott? Uh, so um, my daughter will be eight next week. My son is four, and my youngest uh, is almost two. She's going to be two in December. And do you, do you have any views about homeschooling? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to homeschool, but and I appreciate but, given the given the job you have, it's not exactly easy. Yeah, I mean, my, my wife away for long stretch, uh, long stretch of time. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've been very lucky. I, I, I can't say I've been away. I, I was home for the birth of each of my children, uh, which is more than most sailors can say. But um, I'd love to homeschool, but my wife is a full-time mother, and mm. you know, they've already got my tax and the kids like going to school they have friends and so on but no I'm, I'm cl- very much in favour of it and a lot of our Muslim friends in, in Glasgow they uh, they homeschool because they really don't trust um, this this transgender uh, stuff that's being pushed in the schools at the minute um, but I, I'm not against it it's um, I think it's a good thing and I, and I think the statistics show that the homeschool kids are better across the board in terms of socialization which is something that a lot of parents worry about uh, and they come they come away usually with a far higher degree of uh, literacy numeracy problem solving everything like that which is crazy when you think about it an amateur does a better job in in education without any training it, it, 
you know, if I was an amateur heart surgeon, I don't think I would get better results than the professionally trained surgeons. But that seems to be how poor our education system is. I think, I think to, to be fair to the education system, when when you're home, I mean, I'm not going to defend that people know what, what we think about it, but um, when you're homeschooling, it's one-on-one or one-on-two or very small groups. But to be fair, the education system is designed to capture the normal distribution of of people. If you're in that middle band, you're okay. But if you're too far one way or too far the other, they have a problem. And they're also the this is where the government comes in to to say, look, now we've got you've got to teach this in this way. And it's I would defend that the schools are having to teach what the te- what the government are telling them rather than what they might want to do. And some of the best teachers I've heard actually say, look, the government want us to teach you this. And this is how we would teach you it for the exam, but also know that this is actually the way you would do this. So they try to incorporate kind of reality into their teaching. So, um, but having said that, obviously it's, it's a bit like the NHS, which is another can of worms to start discussing. It's going to be hugely variable based upon location. I think most schools outside of London are much worse um, generally than... Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's just a societal problem you know the the yeah that's true but that's within the prussian model paradigm so that the education system we have now is it's started off in the the arms race and the lead up to world war one and it was designed you know that's why there's 30 people in a class yeah because there was 30 people in an army unit yeah and the goal of prussian education is to breed compliance and i think we've seen as a society what 100 and 50 years of compliance training has done when they come out with this COVID stuff. And well, it was something that I would it was for really factories. try to deal with. Yeah, it was for, yeah. for factories. So that's why they ring the bell and you out you go and then you come and it's all, right. so, you, 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 sorry, you're thinking for yourself. No, 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 none of that, please. This is the curriculum. The school bell, the school yeah. bell was Pavlovian conditioning. Yeah. And, and they deliberately would change you from subjects. So you do maths for 30 minutes, English for 30 minutes so that you never actually get a full... And it, you imagine if you worked through your day where you only did a task for 30 minutes, you would never get anything done. You'd be too confused, but that's how they treat children, whereas studies have shown if they just do a full day of maths, full day of English, you know, they get much better results. That's incredible. I hadn't even thought of that. Have you seen Have you seen The Wire, Scott? Yeah, yeah. I spent 10 days at Anchor off Shetland and I got through the full thing. So I think it's in... The second series where one of the, the so that for anyone that doesn't know, and I can't believe there's anyone that really doesn't know the why, but it's I, I'd say it's almost um, uh, Dickensian in, it, in its scope because it, 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 mm-hmm. it analyzes whole swathes of mm-hmm. Bal- Baltimore, b- Bodymore, Murderland, Baltimore's um, community. So it starts with the police and the police, and I guess the drugs, uh, the drugs gangs, and then it then it then it touches on the education system. So it touches on teaching. It touches on the council, and so it touches on politics, and then it touches on the media. Wow! And it, it's a fantastic, it's absolutely fantastic. And it was, uh, it was, it was re- written by an actual policeman and a teacher from uh, Baltimore. Okay, because the thing I was going to cite is the policeman that becomes a teacher, and then yeah, he, spoiler? He, start, he, he starts. Yeah, spoiler alert. So, <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, only, it's only like part way through season two, so it's less than halfway through, and he he, he suddenly realizes that teaching to the test 
in the school. So it's just like what he calls duking the stats. In other words, they'll they'll get you know. In other words, once you have a target, once you have a uh, you know a, a bureaucratic ambition, then you will you will you will meet it come hell or high water. But that doesn't necessarily lead to a good outcome for those involved. So they'll teach they'll teach to the they'll teach to the test. But that doesn't mean anything. It just means mm. that everyone gets the same meh of sort of you know random nonsense. Yeah, and you th- you look at America. I mean, we lived in America. And my eldest daughter was born there, and we we often sort of think should we go back? And like you know, but I mean, the education systems are worried there, and you do they have literacy or sort of fifty percent now, and you you um. Before they had government schools, literacy was about 95%. And it was because all the schools were Presbyterians, uh, terrified if their kids couldn't learn to read the Bible, they'd go to hell. And so they had near 100% literacy. Uh, and you, you imagine an eight-year-old kid back then was reading Charles Dickens. You can't imagine yeah. an eight-year-old now tackling a book like that, uh, of that sort of vocabulary um but that's how it used to be before the government got involved because I'm, so, I'm struck i'm struck by well you just you just beat me to the punch because i'm struck by the fact that one uh, a podcast we did quite a few years ago now with a, a wonderful Aust- austrian school gentleman by the name of year guido hulsman who's written on mises and he's also written an excellent book called the ethics of money production which after I was given it as a gift, I, I left on the shelf for a couple of years, plucking up the courage to read it because it sounded a bit <laughs> intimidating. But Jörg, yeah. we had on, I think I was actually at your place, Paul, where yes, we did the recording. I remember, yeah. And we asked him if he could change one thing uh, to make things better, what would it be? And he, 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 I was surprised by his answer, which was get government out of education. Yeah. And you see the fountain source of all of, the, all of our ills. It's conditioning and, you know, they have them for eight hours a day from the age of three years old until they are 18. And when they come out, what have you done with that time? You've had my kid for eight hours a day for 15 years and they are unemployable. Can't read, they can't write. Can't write. They can't, they don't have a trade. Uh, they can't do their taxes. They, you know, it's, it's, what have you been doing? Well, they've been indoctrinating them. And I see it with my kid. She's in primary four now, but even primary one, two, three, you know, they do this thing where the kids, okay, kids, we're going to do a poster today. And my kid comes to home, daddy, oh, look, I made a poster. And it's like, don't use landfill, like some, you know, ecological propaganda from the 70s. They're still making the kids do that. And I realized, what are they doing? They're, they're teaching the kids that um, what young people are supposed to do is nag grown-ups for political outcomes. That That's, uh, you know, they're training them to be little good little socialists from day one. You know, um, I do. I have to do a lot of deprogramming with my kids, and you see it on. Uh, what, you know, I watch a lot of the kids' shows um, to to sort of check for wokeness. Uh, Channel Five is one of the worst. They have uh, the kids' show in the morning called uh, Milkshake, and they, they have all the cartoons. But in between oh, yeah. the cartoons, yeah, 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 they, I remember that. They don't. They don't miss a trick to to push this politics on them. They really don't. I had to pause the TV the other day because it's Black History Month now. And, the, you know, socialists always do this where they have children lecture, like Greta Thunberg's, you know, they lecturing grown-ups. Um, and, and it's a psychological trick to make you uh, never trust um, history or authority of, you know, wisdom and, and to break the generations. And so what they do is they, they had to... Uh, 
uh, African English uh, presenter sitting down lower than a child. The child's on a pedestal, and she's sitting telling um, this woman about how why black people are so special. And I, I had to pause the TV and I spoke to my kids. I said, "Look, do you have friends with different color skin? Yes. Do you think they're special because of their skin color? Well, no. That's right. Well, thank God a four-year-old can see through this mm. stuff." But you really have to do a lot of this sort of deprogramming. And I said, look, I'm turning this off because it's racist. And the kids agreed with me. And, you know, they have other shows. The BBC is terrible, too. They have these, um, they seem innocuous. They have these shows. There there was one, uh, I forget what it's called. It's like a a town where the children, toddlers basically run the town and they pretend to be a policeman and this and that and the other. It's central Um, London, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Bugsy Malone. But, um... They, they, uh, my daughter can see right through it too. Like they said, okay, we're going to have a race, like it's sports day. And they've got like a blind kid, a kid in a wheelchair, uh, you know, an, an able-bodied child. And of course they're all different races and they're going to have a, like an egg and spoon race or something like that. Everyone gets a medal? Uh, no, they all, they all do a different activity to get to the finish line. And even my daughter said, that's not a race. They're all, they're doing five, six mm. different things. Mm. That's not a, a child can even perceive that that's not a competition. But it's really sinister, this stuff. They're going really young. Um, so you have to, I mean, for anyone who has kids out there, you really have to watch what the kids are watching. You can't trust them. You can't, you can't, you can't trust the BBC. Well, you I, can't I, trust any of these. I've got kids as well. And uh, as I say, as, as you've been doing, I was doing exactly the same thing, pointing out, but main, obviously things have got worse because obviously we don't watch, well, my, my kids are 11 and 15. And so that, that sort of bracket of program that you're talking about, they don't watch anymore, mm. of course. Yeah, uh, so yeah. things have obviously got a lot worse since, since they were watching TV because I was purposely pointing out things like um, there, were, there was a time when you couldn't actually advertise to children at all. And mm-hmm. because companies weren't making enough money they pressured the government to make it so that they would allow advertising of any sort to children like sugary drinks and all that stuff so yeah so i um so i then started to to point out whenever they were doing that and because as you know you've got to be very the way you handle that situation is so interesting because you did absolutely the right thing instead of actually saying look this is I think this is racist. I'm going to turn it off where your kid will then see that as an act of authority. And then later on, they might go against that. You just pointed it out and say, what do you think about this? So I would try to do the same, um, by saying things like, Oh, Oh, look, look at the Olympics. There's, they've got, um, they've got a sign on the sign of the bus for the Olympics. And, and, um, Look, they've got so saying get vaccinated. They've got, yeah, um, and they've got uh, they've got they've got those uh, Cadbury's fingers next to the Olympics. And I said, well, I wonder why they're doing that, associating a event where you've got high performing athletes at the pinnacle <clears throat> of their career, a pinnacle of fitness. Why are they associating that with chocolate that's bad for you? I wonder why that is. Why are they making that link? And why is the biggest McDonald's possibly in Europe, in the in the village? You know the um, Olympic village. Yeah. yeah. And so so when you point these things out, they they see the and it, obviously it won't stop them eating chocolate and it won't stop them 
um, being influenced no. by all the advertising that that occurs day to day because that's that's impossible to fight against. Yeah, but I, the, the the one that, the one thing as well that's important to note is is the difference between advertising and propaganda. You know, because your kid your kid might eat chocolate fingers and then get a bit fat or feel unwell, and and then they don't have to buy chocolate fingers anymore. But the the thing that's so pernicious about the propaganda is this is a policy, this is happening, you know, and whether you like it or not, that we're going to, this is, we're trying to brainwash you, but you don't get a say. You don't get to withhold money from the government. So, you know, mass immigration. So if, every advert you watch now, if you looked at um, British advertising, it's every single couple is a mixed race couple. And it's almost always um, a, a male of African descent with a, a sort of white, usually a redhead female. Now, the, there's plenty of mixed race marriages, nothing wrong with that, but statistically in the UK, it's much more likely to be a white male with an Asian uh, female. And they, but so <laughs> they, they're clearly, and, and it just happens to be at a time where we're getting mass immigration from North Africa. Now, why is, why is that? Nobody voted for the immigration, uh, but it's happening. So this is, you know, it's it's agenda setting, and it's propaganda that you're you're also paying for the propaganda. You're paying for your own propaganda propagandization as well. It's it's to manufacture consent. How hopeful? Are, sorry to interrupt. How how hopeful are you that the pendulum, which seems to have reached its sort of uh, maximum angle of absurdity, can can swing back to something approximating to what we used to call normality? Well, I think the thing that these people don't understand is that um <laughs> ironically human beings actually are human beings and, and you know i, I one not thing just I do get not just biddable automatons then uh, right you know the i shared on my blog this morning there's a great uh, movie on uh bit shoot you need to watch called uh fluvid 19 i saw it the weekend it's quite it's quite it's quite scary quite scary it'll be, it'll be quite scary to a lot of people if, yeah, if you haven't been paying attention, it might be shocking. But at, at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm almost sick of talking about COVID because, it ha I, you know, from the beginning, it didn't make sense. And so people who are sort of waking up now, it's like I've sort of moved on, you know, which is really tough. But people need to see things like this. And in terms of hope, I think, you know, um, they believe that we should all be out rioting in the streets and killing each other by now. But actually, we're not. And it's because human beings actually have relationships with each other that are not mediated by the state. And and so that is the hope. Um, you know, it comes direct from your community, from your community and your, and, and, you know, um, all your relationships that are built on consent. So speaking speaking so, of community, we have a, a, a mutual friend in in common, uh, Stephen Wilkinson. How, how did you get to? How did your paths cross there? Oh, is um, that via Substack? Yeah, literally Substack. I I um I used to follow him on Good and Prosper after he was on uh, James Dellingpole's podcast. He was only on Dellingpole because we had him first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not there's any friend, there's a fr completely friendly rivalry between these two podcasts. Other podcasts are clearly available. Yeah, no, but J James James has been, you know, a great inspiration to me as well through through the whole 
COVID time, he seems to be the only journalist who's actually got a pair. Uh, the only journalist who's yeah. got a pair. Absolutely. Um, so it was him who encouraged me to get to get writing. And um, so is and, he? Was yeah. he actually responsible for you getting on? Because I was also going to ask about Substack. So is 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 James? Yeah. Why you game on Substack? Yeah, yeah, and it, it's going really well. I, and it's sort of it's so nice because I, I never really bothered with uh, social media for the last few years. Um, and I just, but it's nice to sort of. I mean, I started writing because I just couldn't. I couldn't. My conscience wouldn't rest, and I just had to do something. Um, to, so I just decided, you know what? I'm going to add my voice. Just go and pick a fight in public and see what happens. And um, it's been a bit like sending up a flare to use a maritime mm. metaphor. Mm. You know, you, you you're sort of connected with people by ideas, not just in the place you live. And you know, I've got. I mean, it's really really taken off. And I just think Stephen Stephen's been such a good friend online just because he's a good guy and, mm. and his, his, um, he's such a generous guy and he's sharing my work has just been incredible to me because I, at the end of the day, I'm just a working guy. I'm out there trying to make a living and I'm just putting these ideas out there and I'm like, obviously I was a bit scared. Um, we were all trying to make sense of the world at a very unsettling time. It is frightening, but it, but it, <sighs> You know, again, what I, what I tend to write about, I just go with what I know, and it's reality. It's always there. It's right there in front of you. Because I've 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 really started to enjoy. I've only been using Substack for a few a few months now, but I, I I've warmed to it not least because having been cancelled on Twitter about two months ago, I needed a to fill a Twitter shaped void in my uh, in my life, and Substack I think is that thing. And it's, it's actually, a safe space. It's actually way better than Twitter because the quality of writing I find is is wholly exceptional. Not least people like yourself and Stephen. And Twitter doesn't do that. It's it's not what it does. Tim, what it's is your what, what is your sub what is your Substack? Uh, it's called the Price of Everything, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just looking at it now just to get the address. Bear with me. Talk amongst yourselves for a while. <laughs> but uh, I, I I think it's the I think it's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, Scott, maybe maybe yeah. you could give us yours. Quality long form. Maybe maybe you could um, give us yours while we're waiting. Yeah, so Cap- Captain Yankee Jock. Um, so my website is yankeejock.com, which obviously just explaining the connection that um, my wife and kids are American. I lived in America, but I'm ah, Scottish. Right, okay, right. Um, jock is not just uh, sports underwear. Um, uh-huh. It's just Scottish people. Yeah, um, well, we, we would get that. They might not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so you... So, um, because I was going to wind back a little bit as to kind of how you became more involved in in the sort of social media, public media about the way you felt. Um, because Tim and I have this thing where if one of us wants somebody on the podcast, we kind of, we have this unwritten agreement that they will come on because we know whoever comes on will have something interesting to say. Um, right. Tim's following your Substack. I must admit, I'm not. I haven't had time to to, to, to read it. I've just been it's only absent, a matter of time, Paul. But I'm sure I'm going to really enjoy it if Tim's enjoying it. So your your background has been as a father, as somebody who works in the marine uh, industry and has worked in the oil industry, you just wanted right. to have your voice heard. And presumably your 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 Substack's become more and more popular because of what you're saying. But what is, what's the sort of article that you will write? What will you pick apart and, and put up there for, for, for discussion? 
anything. I mean, I just write about my life, and, I, and it, it just seems to be that it's resonating. I mean, I, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite. Um, I've had a quite a varied life, you know. As they say, it's not the age, it's the mileage. And um, <laughs> I, I, I've sort of sailed all over the world. And, and the thing I think people seem to like about my take on things is that I have met thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people all around the world working, you know, I worked on around the world cruise ships and, and um, with and with doing that as well, you're, you're not a tourist. You're not going to a business meeting to meet people that you've pre-arranged you're going you're showing off in a foreign port and the first thing that happens is 10 different authorities come from the state and you might be in quite a sort of authoritarian country and you know, so you've, you've seen the, the worst aspects of government up close right. and personal then right and, it, and it's really you know i wasn't at all surprised with the the aggressiveness of the australian police through covid for example because i've worked in australia on the barrier reef and i've been there on cruise ships uh, over the years and i've seen them be really ridiculously you know um and and they like to play rough same same in canada everyone was surprised about canada but you know i've met these these mounty police like they like to play rough and you know they're but you think about it, it's fair enough. They, they're used to taking down lumberjacks or had a few too many out in the countryside, you know, so they're quite comfortable tasering civilians in the street. And, you know, this we have this sort of myth that the West is genteel, but at the end of the day, the state is the state. You know, it's it's uh, you comply or they escalate, and, and, and that's what it is. And that. so I've had no illusions about that for years and years and years. So that's the frame I'm coming through, but the... You know, I have a religious aspect to my writing as well, which, you know, is something that um, is developing as I discover it. You know, I wouldn't say, um, you know, that's the main focus, but it's part of my life. And, and as I said, you know, my wife is Jewish. Um, my dad is married to a Muslim. He converted to Islam to, to be married to her. And my family is, has been, you know, a mix of Catholic, Protestant, atheists you know so I've, I've had these themes through my whole life before all this mass immigration and everything so I, i'm not i'm not of the camp of right-wing people who are really upset with islam or you know in, the, in, a, in a funny way i think the muslims in britain are actually um a good bulkhead against a lot of the tyranny that we see now um because they they actually believe in, in their moral standards um and that's actually a force that I don't think is politically understood um, outside of outside of the left. Um, but yeah, I because I do a job that nobody wants to do. Like I spend my day at sea, chucking my guts out, getting shouted at by clients, deal, you know, dealing with dangerous situations. I am completely free to write whatever I want. I'm not scared I'm going to get fired because nobody wants to do my job. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I tend to have that sort of. Um, thing but, I, but at the same time I'm working with um, foreign nationals all the time, Eastern Europeans Indians, Filipinos uh, in Europe um, and so when we talk about Ukraine I, I'm getting a different perspective um, from from your average uh, punter because I've got a, a Russian guy and a Ukrainian guy on my ship you know um, what, so is that, what is that perspective that I'm, I'm very interested to hear on Ukraine? Yeah 
Uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of staying out of that one because I can I can see both sides, but I, I think generally the feeling is uh, as the winter gets colder, political pressure on uh, Europe to end the war will increase. But um, essentially, since twenty, I mean, uh, you know, I hate, I hate doing this, but I you know I had a I shared a cabin with a Ukrainian guy for three months when I was on the cruise ships and. He, he was a tough guy and he'd been on the super yachts, Abramovich's yachts and all, all this stuff. And he was an ex-paratrooper. Uh, and, um, you know, so I knew before 2014 that these guys, these Ukrainians were very pro-Russia. Um, they, you know, and they do they do want their empire back. You know, they're, they're, they're tough people. They've been through hard times. And, and I've worked with lots and lots of Russian people over, over the years and Ukrainian people. They make up 15% of all seafarers. Um, but what's what's happening? Well, my friend he he got called back into the army. He had to leave the sea back in 2014, and, and he never went back to sea again. And I, I messaged him on Facebook a while ago, and you know he was in the west of Ukraine, and he told me they saw some action. But uh, the government, the Ukrainian government at that time, basically collapsed, and and they were living. The, the government now basically was not performing as we would call a government. It, it, it's been a failed state since then. So generally the opinion of the guys is that sort of the current regime in Ukraine is not what we in the West think of as a sovereign nation government, you know? Um, so, it, but it's complicated because, and, you know, I really don't know enough about it to, to go into any more detail than that because I haven't spoken to my friends from Ukraine since probably 2019 when I sure. thought I was going to go out there. And, so, you, and you're only getting a perspective anyway, so it's it's understandable it's within that framework. But it's it's, right. it's just really interesting to get sort of other ideas and other opinions as to what what people feel are going on because you're hearing is, both sides, aren't you? This, this is what I love about Substack, which is that it's 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 a platform that enables communities of shared interests to find each other and sort of engage and and completely counter the narrative that's coming from the legacy mm. media. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, did you find your, your Substack handle? Tim? Yeah, so I'm just timprice.substack.com. Right. Brilliant. Yeah. But the way the way I describe it, I'd, I'd sort of wax even more rhapsodical and, and say that it's, <laughs> I, I, as you probably know, Scott, I have a sort of fondness for, for, for film and for cheesy quotes. And the the film would be the, the the metaphor from film would be um, the Klesing Cancer third kind. That what tie what ties in many of us as a, if I if I can use the term us is they're like. Have you seen Klesing Cancers? Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's it, it it's like the people who are seized by a vision. They don't necessarily know exactly what it means, but they feel compelled to investigate it. In the same way that Richard Dreyfuss's character sees this image of Devil's Canyon or whatever it is, Devil's Tower, Wyoming. And even though he doesn't know what it means, it, it completely takes over his life to the extent that ultimately he, he's literally driven there to, to, to visit the place and obviously you know, other things ensue. But it's this community of people that are just seized by an idea, um, which might be, a, it might be malign, it might be benign, we don't really know. Um, but it's it's almost um, if it's not religious, it's it certainly has spiritual um, uh, aspects to it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's, it's exploration, isn't it? It's, it's um, that's the way I view it. 
you're sort of trying to navigate your life and you have all these obstacles around you and you're looking for a map. Because I, I noticed that, that when you when you very kindly gave us a sort of a, a plug on on your piece today, you, you raised the issue which we've also discussed ourselves about what is it about people in finance that seems to make them that much more open yeah. to to being critical of some of these trends than to say other professions. And the thing I would suggest is, and, and I'm hugely grateful for, for for Paul and for having the opportunity to do this uh, podcast because. What it meant was that at a fairly early stage, back in 2020, we were speaking to people like Nick Hudson of Pandata. We had Barry Norris, who's a fund manager who, who was really on top, of, who was really on top of his game when it came to matters relating to the so-called vaccine. Um, we've had Chris McIntosh, and and the very first person, the very first person that highlighted me to basically high jinks um, going on in the world was um, I'm trying to think now. It's Michael Sanger, and Michael Sanger is a tax attorney. Now, you would think that, you know, that given that this is notionally a health a healthcare issue, that the people yeah. with the most value to bring to the table would be people who are sort of in, from the pharmaceutical sector, but almost to a man, with some exceptions, I mean, Mike Yeadon being an honorable exception, but almost to a man, all of the most informed and useful people I've, I've spoken to personally, they've all been from the world of finance, which is really odd. Yeah, it, it's it's new to me. I, I'm discovering it, and it, it's it's funny being on a podcast called State of the Markets. And I'm not a finance guy at all. Uh, you know, uh, I think I had some Bitcoin. That was like the first time I made money from any investment ever. Uh, you know, and just stumbled across it. But this, I think, I think you guys just seem to read all the time, and you're not you're you're looking for outlying data. As well, we're not we're not, we're not necessarily looking for confirmation. Yeah, we're looking for right. things that could you're prove that this is wrong. That's right, and you and because because you have real consequences for your actions, you know, that's the thing. Is is academics, ivory towers, and all, and all this um, experts. This just the word expert makes me sick now, because as you know, you probably know from finance that I know from from working in, in maritime is there are no limit. There is no limit to the number and type of mistakes that human beings can make. As soon as you think that you've got a, a, a grasp of any pattern or, or someone will mess up something in some catastrophic way that you couldn't even imagine. And I think that there must be an IQ thing as well, because, but it's more than that, it's imagination. Because when you do a risk assessment, it's easy to do a risk assessment and say, you know, will the ladder fall over? No, and tick the box. But to actually imagine things that don't exist that could exist you have to understand business models and, and principles and logic in a way that you really don't have to that you know average people in a, most occupations they don't have to dig that deep into logic and they don't when they, you know whereas i know and, and you probably know when something is contradictory and it gives you that instinct of that feeling of cognitive dissonance that that's where you want to dig deeper and, and pull the thread you don't want to ignore that, whereas most people, it's just an uncomfortable feeling. I'll go away from that. But what, what you do and what I do is when I find, okay, you know, this kind of cargo might explode, I'm going to read every single document I can get my hands on. I'm going to, it doesn't matter how boring it is, I'm going to have the discipline to, to go through, you know. And, there's, and think, there's an element of accountability to it. So I, I love the idea that in the days of ancient Rome, someone, the architect of a bridge, would have to basically lie underneath it and wait for oh, yes. a chart to yeah. go over it. 
uh, before it was then sort of open to the public. So in other words, if it didn't work, you'd, yeah. you'd pay the price. So captain goes down with the ship. It, it, it's that simple. Um, eat, eat your own cooking, skin in the game. You know, my, my father-in-law, this is my one financial connection. My father-in-law was a Wall Street guy. Um, so he, he likes to see skin in the game. That's his big thing. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think a lot of it is actually critical thinking and, and what you realize when you get into finance it's a bit like what you realize when you start driving on the road when you're taught to drive by your driving instructor and you pass a test that's one thing but when you actually drive on the road nobody drives like that so right. what have you learned you've learned to control the car in a certain way to pass a test and it's exactly the same with your education system you either ex accept that and just go through life believing everything that everybody says or you actually kind of think for yourself and say well is this correct and how can i cross-reference it and who can i talk about and can i make my own opinion about this and mm -hmm. and you know you can go too far down the road sometimes of thinking that everything that everybody says is wrong and and there there you have to make allowances for the fact that some people do make genuine errors and there's not always a nefarious reason for their actions but you've also got to realize that in finance if you've got the head of the gold council talking about gold going up for example he's going to be biased so therefore they right. we all have biases and and a ceo of a company is going to say how great things are they're never going to say things are really bad and you look at the history of companies well, that's that have, the gerald ratner well <laughs> yeah that's right um but when so and when a company too, they, they, there's no there's no exemption for government to that rule. You know they, they make mistakes and they have bias and they have incentives as well. And I think you guys understand incentives really well. Well, when you when you've also gone through when you go through a few trading cycles, and by that I mean you've seen boom and bust. And I I um I got interested in finance around eighty seven when just before the stock market crash. But then I became an investor in the early 90s and started using technical analysis then. And then I started teaching it in the um, late 90s. Well, actually throughout the 90s at the City University. And what you what you find is you've seen the show before. You get you get the feeling of when you've read your market history mm. and you've seen what happens in cycles, you see what the governments do, you see how... The, the like the finance so people would say to me well, what does the finance minister say, think of this what does what does the prime minister think of this and i and i would always say well who cares because that person will yeah. be out you know they're, they're there for a few years they're going to get as yeah. much out of that system that they can and then it's off on to the next one and off on to the next one and so the markets aren't driven they are driven by a certain extent, in the sh very short term, by what they do, but there, there are much more long. There are long-term cycles that are at play that are far more important. That are mm -hmm. inferring what is going on in the markets, and it's when you learn to separate the noise that's coming through. So you think the technology that we have today compared with a hundred years ago, where you were reading a piece of tape, a ticker tape of data from the stock exchange ripping it off which was probably minutes late and then trading and you think well oh nowadays we've got bloomberg systems and our phones that we take with us i mean look at the technology we've got compared to then they would say that that wasn't ever possible and yeah. how well informed we must be but the problem is that because there's so much information there's so much noise as well 
And it's almost probably worse now than it was then to make decisions because you now have to wade through everything that's wrong. And therefore, you have to have your own method of doing that. And it's very difficult to sort of teach to people as to what is what you need to ignore and what you need to 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 sort of take account of in the same way if i could use the analogy of driving on the road um you you personally might actually sort of look at how the other driver or look at where the driver's looking or you might when you're pulling out from a junction look at the reflection of the cars to see whether another car's coming very subconsciously because you've done it so many times um, and to realize that you can tell when something's not right, but you can't really explain that to somebody. And so you have to kind of go through that process a few times. And then when you then you're taken out of that scenario and you're in another scenario talking to people about a completely different subject, you, you almost have this kind of bullshit bullshit indicator that tells you that doesn't mm -hmm. sound right. Hang on. How can that be? And how can you be so sure about this? And and then you start looking at other data that's conflicting it and thinking well that just doesn't make any sense but most of the time we've experienced that with economists talking about the markets who generally give you a very good story but don't actually predict the markets very well there's some there's some that do i'm not not discrediting all of them but but their role isn't actually to predict the markets their their role is more kind of financial journalism is the way i see it they're, they're telling you their, their role it tends to be to justify politics a lot of the time yeah, I mean, when you've got economists in 2008 telling you how good the economy is and how we're not going to go into recession, when when you're, you know, and you're just saying, they say, well, Janet well, Yellen sees no low likelihood of a financial crisis in her lifetime. Well, exactly. I mean, th these comments are so ridiculous. Absurd. They're yeah. so absurd. You're just like, how can you, how can you take anything that they say with any credibility? when when they say something like that because they, the, you know, the first they, thing you learn about in finance is you're dealing with uncertainty yeah yeah and i, I learned that in publishing too because you know you realize when you when you sit around a table for a working group and you, you're trying to you're trying to craft a document and you realize that you know you've got the lawyer in the room doing the legal read and so on and you, you, the the difference between using the word must or shall and you know the implication of just one word change how that can have that drastic difference to to think you painstake over the over the details and then you then you see boris johnson come on television and make generic statements like vaccines are safe but you know that you know that's a lawyer has written that line you know um it, it's the most generic possible statement that no one can argue with you know and this is a sort of tri trickery and you're right you do get an instinct for it and you have a threat detection system and, and you learn it's a muscle you have to use to learn to exercise your judgment. And and that's another problem with this. You know, I deal with my wife all the time, having cultural differences, being from America and coming here and um, how to spot uh, likely criminal behavior, for example, um, and, and just teaching her, well, you know, if someone's wearing sports clothing and they're not coming to or from a gym, that person might, you know, you want to cross the street and avoid. Might, might be Jimmy Savile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and things like that, 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 that she doesn't have the pattern uh, history to, to recognise a threat like that in this country. So teaching things like that, and you, you, you have to sort of become a bit of an anthropologist and look at your own culture differently to, to spot threats. And, you know, it's interesting being a, 
international couple comparing each other's cultures like that and, and trying to figure out why do people do things a certain way and and yeah i think pattern recognition and threat detection noise to signal ratio these are all things that i think people appreciate in my writing because I, i'm not just metaphorically doing that every day i'm, I'm literally doing that every day with i, I think work. what this shows is that uh, i forget the name of the author who wrote it but basically everything connects yes everything is linked and to your point earlier about uh, paul about human nature it reminded me of something from Jesse Livermore, which I just had to quickly look up. And this is a quote from the guy himself, who's the original sort of boy, boy trader on on Wall Street in the 1920s. So he made and made and lost several fortunes before he, he killed himself. There is nothing new in Wall Street. There can't be because speculation is as old as the hills. Whatever happens in the stock market today has happened before and will happen again. Human nature doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And if it does, mm-hmm. it happens at such a glacial pace that it effectively doesn't change during the course of a lifetime. Now, you wrote the forward to the, one of the most uh, well-regarded financial books in history, Tim, which I think is just brilliant. I'll take, I'll take that. No, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I, in the 90s, I was recommending Reminiscences of a Stock Operator as the single book that you should read if you wanted to understand financial markets. And then, when, when did you write the, the forward? Was it in, it, in it 2000? Well, I, it must have been fairly recently because it was it, the, the connection is that Harriman House was the publisher of my first book, um, Investing Through the Looking Glass. And so they then came up with a reissue of, of uh, the Jesse Livermore. Um, effectively, it's a thinly disguised Jesse Livermore biography, mm. autobiography. And so they asked me to write the forward. So it is one of the things I'm probably proudest of. But th- th- this, is, this is the point that, as I was saying, everything is linked. That, that there is much more in common with with all these different disciplines than you might think. And uh, Scott Scott mentioned something earlier about um, what was the word? Um, uh, what was the specific word? Incentives. So one of the all time all time um, quotes from um, Charlie Munger, who is the right hand man to Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, probably the most successful investment business in the in history of mankind. Charlie Munger basically said. People respond to incentives. Everything else is detail. Or if he didn't say it, he certainly has, has made the same point legions of times. People respond to incentives. Everything else is detail. So we're talking about connections and, and comparisons. The one I'd make would be the crushing one or you know, cl- clashing one, perhaps, I'd make would be the two th- what 2008 showed was the complete regulatory capture of government by Wall Street interests. What 2020... And, and subsequent years have shown is the complete regulatory capture of government by bad pharmaceutical companies. Well said. Yeah, I th- how how would we deal with this? How do you disconnect what... Uh, and actually some people made this exact point, something that we've been saying. Actually, Tim was the first person I've ever heard the expression crony capitalism from. It was him, you were saying this years ago, crony capitalism. And it's until you started saying crony capitalism that you actually realized we we could see what happened in the crisis where you had long-term capital management first crisis where Wall Street uh, is is in trouble and in comes the Fed to to save them. And you go tw- 24 years ago. And then and then you see it happening again 2008 and you think okay, somebody's got to pay a price for this and it's in debt that's just getting bigger and bigger. But this crony capitalism link between companies and government and how do we break it? How do we break the fact that that food companies have such influence over the European Parliament that that they can 
advertise it's, to children. It's, it's, and, it's worse than that. It's worse yeah. than that. It's um, you, you need to look at the business model of the state. I mean, what you look, you so you look at the history of the East India Company and the Hudson Bay Company, for example. It's um, well, uh, pure terms. If you go back to ancient history, what is a government? Well, it's it's basically the military conquers an, an area, and within that area, they have monopoly on the use of force, and therefore they have the ability to extract tax. So the citizens become tax cattle, right? So pure business model, amoral, that, that's more or less what it is. They set the rules, uh, they are the rulers, and they're exempt from the laws. And it's in the, its structure is a bit like a limited liability company in the sense that they have no liability. They can do anything. They can use force, and they will not be punished for it, right? So what, what they do when they form these companies is they would license out that ability. So they would say to a private company, it's almost a franchise model. We're the state, we're exempt from you know uh, prosecution for military actions. India, East India Company, Hudson Bay Company, you now have this license in this territory basically to act as government, which means you're exempt from, you, you're the highest authority. And, and it, it's literally just a franchise model, and it's sort of morphed into this weird thing where you've got the corporate structures now are so big that they've got a higher market cap than most small countries. And so you, you have this internationalism where you see all the time in shipping. Uh, they have um, down by you in London the International Maritime Organization, which is a technical committee for the UN. It's the only branch of the UN that's outside of uh, New York. And we got it after World War Two. That was a, a sort of British prize. Um, but the uh, let's take an example for the um, environmental side. So they have these uh, sewage treatment systems on ships, and a manufacturer gets a regulation passed at the IMO to say our thing is type approved. So that means it's got a big government stamp of approval on it, and ships have to buy it. These things cost millions and millions of dollars per item. It doesn't matter that none of them work. Uh, so Sweden did a, I think it was Sweden or Denmark, did a study a few years ago and where they actually did endpoint testing of the sewage treatment systems. So they're all, they're all government approved. You have to have them. And the inspector usually just comes to the ship and checks your certificate to say, oh, it's a government approved system. That's great. These guys actually tested the sewage water that's supposed to be fresh water, basically drinkable, that gets pumped into the sea. And they studied, I think they stopped the study after 20 ships when they found that every single system uh, just basically was pumping raw sewage out un untreated. Uh, and what it is, they, they have biological systems in them. So the first passenger or the first crewman who comes along who uh, has been on antibiotics has a movement that antibiotics goes into the tank, kills uh, all the bacteria in the system that's doing the job of the sewage treatment, and then the whole system's useless. But the ship sails around for 30 years after that. And no, nobody checks, does the system work? What they check is, have you ticked the box of government approval? And so you see this all the time in industry. It's not just these big events like 2008. It, it's, this is the business model mm. of, uh, of the state as a corporation. It's a military corporation. And it, what it does with, with corporations is it franchises out its exemption from liability. And that's what, that's what corporations legally are. If you watch Clarkson's Farm, I'm not sure if you've seen the series, but it's highly recommended. You get to see a lot of, of that 
mm. box ticking and red tape and there's there's a and what was interesting it was uh how it all came about during the the lockdowns and there are <laughs> some of the regulations are possibly there for good reason i would imagine um but some of them are just so ridiculous well they probably started out with good intentions then it just snowballed from there yeah there's nothing a lot of these you know it's a circular argument though because a lot of these things that really they should be done by insurance companies you know really they're the ones with the data and there's plenty of market mechanisms to to make things safe Mm. you know yes Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, who in their right mind would want to have sort of accidents happening, especially on a farm where the right. equipment is extremely dangerous and you're dealing with <laughs> chemicals if and things. Yeah, if exactly. Whereas these giant, you know, a lot of these giant, you know, supranational, basically what they're purchasing from these nation states with regulatory capture is, you know, they're purchasing monopolies and they're purchasing exemption from liability. So it's not just the pharmaceutical industry. But I, th- I think what you, you talk about waking up, I think because this is literally, they've gone so far that they're put, putting this stuff into people's bodies and they've got no liability. Nobody's going to jail over this. Uh, you know, uh, Nobody did the risk assessments. No, did, nobody did the safety studies. All the regulations that are supposed to help you, bang, exemption. And this is the first time that it's been actually something that you inject into your children, you know? Actually, the business model is all around you. It's in every industry. You know? But the, the guy who gives me hope is someone like Dr. David Martin, who points out, presumably he knows, he seems to be in command of his material, that fraud destroys the, um, the corporate uh, protection against um, litigation. In other words, if it can be proven in a court of law that these companies have committed fraud in what they've done very, very quickly with clearly no, uh, no explicit backing from the... Um, agencies that are supposed to safeguard the public, then um, basically we'll see you guys go to go to jail. Mm. And that can't happen quickly that, enough. Well, yeah. I mean, it really... Because we're talking about people. people's lives. I mean, in, in finance, you have a bad day and someone loses a lot of money. But here, here we're talking, you have a bad day and somebody dies. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think we need, we need to really start to re-examine everything. I mean, things like the interest rate stuff that's in the news every day now, I don't, I don't know what you guys think about that, but I, I sort of thought in classical theory, there shouldn't be one interest rate. Different banks should set their own interest rate and consumers go between them. They choose a high risk bank or a low risk bank and, and so on. But why, why is that a centrally controlled price? Well, they, they do because uh, individual banks can offer interest rates at, at different at different rates themselves and when you borrow money they will obviously put a, a, a risk on what the what you're wanting to borrow and that that interest rate mm-hmm. will be reflected in it but the, uh, the central rate is basically dictated by the, cent- the central bank and and the reason for that was there did used to be a lot of individual banks that would issue their own their own um currency currency their own there and in fact in the american history there were lots and lots of different banks who would wouldn't have branch banking. You'd have like an individual bank that would work within one area. And in the early days of banking, you had very little regulation at all. In fact, all you needed was a printing press and some offices. So some paper and ink and a printing press, and you could start a bank pretty much. And that's and how the Federal Reserve was established. Yeah, pretty much. And so <clears throat> so that that's, uh, so that's how they sort of started. And then it, it became... Well, if you went out of state with this money, 
you mm-hmm. you didn't know whether it was fraudulent or not so you had these kind of big tables of whether money was was it was valid or not so imagine going through lots of different currencies trying to work out whether this one dollar bill is actually valid or it's been for, forged so so money would then stay just within its locale because it because people within the local area would know obviously and people outside wouldn't and then it just became homogenized and then the bank of england so we say the bank of england but it's but it's used obviously scotland and wales as well um it was very similar so they then had the the sole right to print money which is why this whole interest this interest in cryptocurrency is so fascinating i guess in the way that it's coming in it's now examined what money actually is so what is money um it used to be that it was linked to gold and silver that's the pound of silver which is what we talked about you used to be able to go to the bank of england with your pound and get a pound of silver i believe mm-hmm. um but then they just decided, well, actually, let's just not bother with that and just have it as fiat. And so, so to say, well, yeah, interest rate, the whole, the whole thing about interest rates, and it's a, a very interesting conversation, is that it, it goes back to the people that are making the decisions about interest rates and where they should be are economists and they have been taught in the economic system with which we've just criticized and Mm -hmm. the reality is you've got the equivalent of driving school teachers expecting people on the road to act on the in the way that they've proclaimed in the their driving test yet in reality people don't act like that so this is the disparity you have and this is why you have traders who make money because they yeah, spot that difference versus reality yeah. yeah so in some ways um i used to get very annoyed at it but then i realized that actually it's what creates the inefficiency that creates the opportunity but jp, JP morgan the banker himself said 100 years ago that gold is money everything else is credit what people associate as money is basically just lent into being, and it, it, it has no has no real existence. It's 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 largely fictional. Oh, it's completely fictional. I mean, you you said you put us onto the book uh, many times, and it took me a while before I read it. And I'm now very grateful to read to have read um, Nuval Noah Harari's book *Sapiens*, which actually says it the it's the best finance book you could ever read in that regard because it explains how corporations are figments of our imagination and so is money money mm-hmm. is a figment of our imagination it I, doesn't i don't know about that though i, I don't no, know about that because it, I, no, there's, it, a history, it there's a history yeah but i, I think it, it's artificial it's nope. a concept but the, but the the idea so there's a thing in history where uh, they had a theory that it evolved from barter systems, but there's actually no archaeological evidence of barter. And it's not a practical thing. But what the earliest economies were was sort of uh, the caveman village. You had the IOU, was the original currency. It was, I will help you put a roof on your house this summer before the winter, and you'll help me next summer. But then... The, you need, you know, fungibility, divisibility, and, and negotiation. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an element of negotiation where, you know, okay, I can't help you with your roof because I broke my leg, but here's half a cow that mm-hmm. I slaughtered. And, and so there's the thing, debt as a concept is fine if it's consensual and negotiated. But what we have now is a, is a system of money based on debt that nobody consents to, and there is no negotiation. That that's. Yeah. 
what confuses me. I think I think we are literally living through the, the terminal days of the unbacked fiat system now because the and the, the, these are not problems that have come out of a clear blue sky. These problems were readily identifiable 12 years ago or 14 years ago during oh, yeah. the global financial crisis, which is if there is too much debt in the system, there are, there's only a, a, a very small number of ways it can be resolved. One is through economic growth, one is through default, and one is through inflation. So we get basically some combination of the last two. But mm-hmm. But the the history of banking is that the, it was through the merch. I mean, the modern day. You go. We talk about cavemen, but I'm talking about more recent history. The history of banking was that the merchant, um, the merchants who needed somewhere to 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 store their gold would then give their gold to uh, use gold promissory st- receipts. So yeah. you'd have a paper claim on the gold. Yeah. So the paper claim on the gold would then be passed around, and then the the, uh, the the guys who would write the promissory notes realized that they could write a few more than the gold that they had and they could lend the money out as long as it got paid back and so they would charge some interest and that's how banking started but the whole the whole concept of money itself has to come from an imagination and that imagination is that that you will get something in the future and in terms of a corporation a corporation is an individual entity that we can't you can't really describe it because it doesn't really touch it you can't touch it you it can't do, feel it you can't see it it doesn't exist it doesn't really exist and money is actually very similar it doesn't a, 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 you know a 10 pound note is just a piece of paper it's an idea it's an idea it, yeah. it gets better than that because as someone recently said money the money system we have now or the currency system i should say is the abstraction of an abstraction. Yeah. So it used to at least have some physical reality. Now it doesn't even have that. Now it's just blips on a screen that represent something that doesn't exist. But it's people's lives, though. I mean, you you know, you, it, this is where there's this, like I graduated in 2007 and I entered that job market. Um, so, you know, it's been very much a sense of, I've had very much a sense of injustice about it since that time. And, it, and there was a lot of stuff, um, you know, and I went down the Bitcoin path and so on, but it, but this is the thing is is inflation as a stealth tax is is really corrosive to to working class people and, and sort of sub working class people. It really is a way that it sort of grinds people down if they don't have any assets that grow with inflation. It, it's torture and, and it steals people. But, it, but, it, but it's also terrible for society as a whole. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's um, it really is abstract. But it, at the same time, it has real consequences and and I, th- I think a lot of the drug deaths and deaths of despair that we see inflation that has to be a factor in that because you feel like you can't get ahead you know and if you, you think um the, the 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 feeding of socialism that's caused by that sense of injustice you know that the the feed the, the people in the underclass that i sort of was lucky enough to escape but that that people just have this sense of burn it down, you know, that, that's the fuel of socialism is that resentment mm-hmm. of I can't win. And, you know, like I've escaped and now I, I run a limited company, I know more about tax, I know more about finance now than I did back then, but it's not an easy thing to learn. And as we spoke mm-hmm. before about education, the schools are not teaching them practical things like this. So there is a, there is a class of people, you know. Um, Trapped in the matrix. Yeah, and then there's the other class that are sort of the weird people from uh, the Hunger Games, you know, who, who live in the capital and they have plenty of assets and they just think, well, you know, if those poor people were smarter, they would know there's, there's plenty of ways around the system and so on. But, it, 
you know, the, the, there is an injustice there in society that's fueled by the model of the currency that we have. And I, how, how do we, like this stuff about central bank uh, digital currencies, I think it could go either way. You know, there, there is a way that, you know, um, if you set things up in a Bitcoin kind of way, like an Ethereum kind of way, where it's a distributed system where consent sort of decentralized, um, there is no monopoly on power and the same rules apply to everyone. I can see an advantage to, to digital currency that way. But this idea that someone who has a monopoly on the use of force gets to dictate it and issue it, that terrifies me. 100%. I mean, it's chilling when you read this social credit scores and the nudging of experts. And you know, there's a, a science fiction writer who, who sort of wrote a little bit tangentially. He was a naval officer, uh, Robert A. Heinlein. Don't know if you know his work, but he, he did the Starship Troopers um, series and, and uh, he predicted uh, the Cold War. Did, did David Murren mention him? I think he mentioned the book. I thought it may, it may have been him. I, I've not read it, but that, that name rings a bell for some reason. Starship Troopers is a great film, certainly. I haven't read the book. It's a great film. The book uh, is a bit different, but it has a little bit more of a history in it. And, and mm. it's sort of fascinating because in the, in the book, um, you know, the world in the movie is uh, post-apocalyptic. So they, they had a global world war that was a nuclear war. And what he said would bring the world to that point was uh, that experts, the rule by experts, would destroy democracies and they wouldn't mm. be able to function. And, and this idea that the scientist knows best uh, only leads to to sort of evil communism, basically. But but he's on, he's after, on the money so far. After the war, uh, the warrior class reverts to a sort of a historical model. It, it, it's, uh, the warrior class takes over and says, puts the scientists in their place and says, no, and you guys are no longer citizens uh, and only military service uh, will give you citizenship. And they basically have one world sort of communism after that. Because that's how the film sort of starts, isn't it? The rights of the rights yeah. of the citizen to be, uh, well, the rights of a citizen per se and where, where, where soldiers or the military get to you know, where they are in the pecking order. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of the, unless you have skin in the game, you don't get to be a citizen. And, and yeah. he sort of has the argument as well that like you don't get to vote on intergenerational debt if you don't have children and things like that. Um, mm. But then you end up in this chilling communist state where you get you need a license from the state to have children. Mm. It, you know, we've seen that in China, how that's worked out. I think I think we I think you've just revealed your media pick, Scott. <laughs> Starship Troopers, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the the book, the book as well as the film. The, the movie is hilarious as well. It's actually comical um, in a black humour kind of way. But it, the, the, actually, I'm a big fan of Starship Troopers. And I watched it the other day. By, I mean, the uh, effects are tremendous. And it's got Michael Ironside, who's always reliable. Yeah. and and But it's just comedy gold as well. Uh, but it, but the, the, the sort of, you can see that that's the UN model for our society. And you think, well, they need an external enemy all the time. And then, but they don't have an insect world to battle in real life. So what, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to class their own citizens terrorists because uh, war is the business model of the state. So they, they're always going to need an enemy. So that's why one world government is terrifying. Something tells me we're going to have to get you back on again at some point quite soon, Scott, if you're amenable <sighs> to that. We, we've, yeah, we've covered a lot of yeah. ground, but I think there's plenty more to cover. Anytime, Tim. I'm away, uh, I'm away um, to see you tomorrow, but... Um, 
I'll be back in a few weeks. You'll just, have to, can, you'll just have to cancel it, Scott. I'm sorry. This is too important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fun. Wait, when you're away um, at sea, do you have access to any form of like internet communication or satellite where yeah. you could do a pod or something? Well, Doing a pod at sea would be fantastic. That, 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 we have to do that. We have to break new ground, so to speak. I'll try, but yeah, this this the satellite signal in the North Sea. It, it depends how much the boat's rolling around, uh, so it's uh, it depends. But yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I'll uh, I'm experimenting. I'm new to this. I, I just did a training course and video and stuff like that. So I'm trying to grow my social media presence. But yeah, for sure, I, it's it's been great talking to you. Um, well, if you need any help with that, just ask me. I'd be more than happy to help you. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm down in London from time to time, so maybe I'll give you give you a message next time we can have coffee in person. That would be yeah, more fun. Yeah, that's like a plan. That sounds sounds like a plan. So, um, was that your media pick then, Scott, or did you have one? Ah, uh, um, well, shall, shall I ask Tim first, and then we can come back? I, to I you. would say no. I, I would say people should watch that fluid nineteen documentary. Uh, FLU VID nineteen. Uh, the link is on my blog post today uh, entitled okay. Good Morning Captain well, Yakajok but we'll link to your Substack, and then yeah. people can find you that way and find that great. that way so yeah great Tim what what have oh. you got for us it's been a while isn't it this is we have had a, a dry season so it, we are we are making up for lost time so mine is con continuing the same theme as, uh, as Scott's which is it's a documentary I saw on Saturday night called Hodorowsky's Dune uh, this is, I, I suspect, Paul, you may not know this story, but basically there's a guy called, a cult director called Alejandro Jodorowsky, who sounds Spanish from the way he speaks. I think he's still alive. Did you spell that? It's J-O-D-O-R-O-W-S-K-Y. Oh, is this this really gory one? No, no, not no. at all. So okay. basically this is a guy who got the rights to Frank Herbert's Dune in 1974 oh, for a yeah. song he, he claimed. And he raised a bit of finance to make the film. He talked Orson Welles into appearing. He talked um, uh, Mick Jagger into appearing. Um, he, he managed to get an agreement that Pink Floyd would do the soundtrack. And he had a storyboard that covered, I think it was a 14-hour film. And wow. ultimately the funding fell through and it was never made. But a lot of people who are particularly sci-fi people say it's, it's the best film that never got made. Oh, wow. Mm. It's a, it's, a fasc, it's a fascinating documentary, and it, it's, it tells you so much about the way films get made or rather don't. Oh, so my God. I'm going to love that, Tim. Terrific entertainment. That's brilliant. Thank it's you. It's called Hodorowsky's Dune, and it was made in 2013. Excellent. So we can put a link in the show notes. Super. I look really look forward to that. So since we've been on, um, it's time's flown, isn't it? And apologies for the sort of big gap, but I've just been swamped. Um, the uh, end of Better Call Saul's happened, which was one of my favourite series. Absolutely oh, yeah, love it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And there was there were some episodes in there that were like nine point nine out of ten. They were just so good. I must admit, what, what Scott? What do you think of the ending? I'm not. I'm not sure. I was such a big fan of the ending. No, I thought it was good because if you know um, the history of the writer, so uh, the, the guy he wrote um, Sopranos. Oh yeah, no, whole thing. Ah, no, I haven't seen Sopranos, so that's that's my right. That's my so thing. you're fine without it, but the the, the idea of the main uh, gangster Tony Soprano was that he he was um, the good guy trying to do the right thing, but his circumstances always pulled him back in to, ah, to doing the wrong thing and ah, couldn't right. escape. Interesting. Bad, 
Breaking Bad was the inverse, where you've got a guy who's got every chance, you know, they're going to pay for this cancer treatment, blah, 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 mm. but he just chooses to like, do the bad thing, whereas Better Call Saul is, is the Cain and Abel, the, the dueling brothers. Yes. And and so you sort of, you have this theme of Saul, is, is, um, is he made, is he born bad? Is he choosing to be bad? And in the end, there's a bit of redemption there, they, you know, so I, I thought it was a redemption story in the end. And mm. The real, the real heroes like you've got Nacho Varga and and um, uh, Mike. Those yes. two guys are the, the fascinating characters, aren't they? Just so deep. Oh, it's so good. Tim, do you watch it at all? I've seen, I've seen Breaking Bad, and I've seen some of Better Call Saul, but I haven't seen all of them. Well, the the thing is, I, I think um, it does. It goes a bit slow in places, and I think that's where people stop. But if you stick with it, it is yeah. fantastic. It is absolutely. If you, the, if you can get through the wire, you can get through Better Call Saul. It's just so good, um, yeah. and it also has a Spinal Tap. Um, uh, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that that relationship with the, the the brothers is just it's just so it's good. It's incredible. Yeah, the yeah. wire and and yeah, the themes are just they're phenomenal. S- they're superb. Um, but um, but my so the end of that was great, and obviously I'm a big fan. But the, I'm going to recommend one, rarely, that uh, occasionally we do this, where I recommend one that I haven't actually seen yet, but I'm really excited to see it, so I want to talk about it now. And it's the latest film from Martin McDonough, who's the... Oh, I've heard about this as well. I want to see this one too. Yeah, it's the, the Banshees Ban- one, isn't it? The Banshees of Inisherin. It looks so good. It looks so brilliant. And it's a got, little bit Irish. A little bit Irish, but it's killed. it's got Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And so That's not bad for better than mine. The garbage <laughs> Who obviously starred in the other Martin McDonough film in Bruges, which I absolutely love. Have you seen yeah. in Bruges? Brilliant. Brilliant film. Tim, have you seen in Bruges? Yeah, I've seen it. I've oh seen fantastic. It. Yeah, Loved great, it. great. So superb. So that's um that's my that's my media pick, and uh, if if I see it and I'm I'm disappointed by it, well, I'm sorry, but but uh, but I'm really looking forward to. I'm so excited to see it. So that's just come out. So um, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely fascinating, and I can see why Tim's a big fan of your Substack because it's been such an interesting conversation. And we'll put links to the show notes. But just a quick final reminder for somebody who might be in the car and not able to write it down. Give us your Substack and your handles again. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, Captain Yankee Jock on Substack. Uh, my website is yankeejock.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram as well. My, my company is uh, Independent Marine Limited. And that website is independentmarinelimited.net. And you can reach me that way. Um, yeah. So anyone who needs a maritime business consultant, I'm open for business. If you're buying a yacht, I'll give you a good deal on a condition survey. Um, Fantastic. Always open for business. Yeah. I've got a friend who's selling one. Does that help? All right. Yeah, yeah I'll, well, I'll, put, I'll put them in contact. I do marine surveys, um, but my, my main specialization is management documentation, obviously, with my, my safety background and, and working all in you know all different sectors, navigation-wise, uh, pretty much up there with the experts on safety of navigation. So anything like that, I tend, what I try to do is in, improve companies' uh, intellectual property uh, value um, by making sure that their uh, operational procedures are just idiot-proof, airtight, and... Ship-shaped in Bristol fashion. Indeed. 
So that's my specialization. Excellent. So, well, thank, yeah. thank you once again. And um, yeah, it's been brilliant. Really nice to meet you guys. Um, yeah, I look forward to the next time. Good stuff. Thanks. Um, thanks, Scott. Yeah, have a good one. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.